Please be advised this episode contains themes that some listeners may find triggering and language that some may find offensive. My name is Maya Howells. I am one of 20,000 women and men who have been spiked in Britain today. But that number is just the tip of the iceberg. And that iceberg led me to start this podcast. In this episode, I dive into the nighttime industry to learn what bars and clubs are doing to keep us safe. People are just scared, aren't they? You can't wait until someone gets spiked in your bar. I explore what needs to change. And I meet one woman who was the victim of spiking by injection and still has the scars to prove it. I felt something in like my shoulder slash neck area. So join me and get under the skin of one of the most insidious and common crimes in the UK today. This is Pricks, episode three, Raising the Bar. So today I spoke to a 26 year old woman from Stoke who's been spiked not once, but twice. I'm Rebecca, I had um, an injection spiking in September um, and I'd also had my drink spiked in uni, so like five years prior to that. Both were very, very different experiences. As with every conversation, it's a depressing, worrying account of how someone has fallen victim to this hideous trend. But what's equally depressing is how it was dealt with by the person who was essentially at the scene of the crime. Yeah, so we were at Hendu in Liverpool. A few of us had gone up. Um, I didn't really know anybody too well. They were all like the bride's friends and me and the bride are childhood friends. So they were all a little bit older than me. We were staying in a hotel. We'd had a couple of cocktails in the day and did like kind of bits of shopping. And then we went back to the hotel to get changed for our, our night out. And um, we had food in the in the hotel. Um, we're all getting ready. Had like a glass of prosecco each. So it wasn't really we weren't really too drunk because you kind of pace yourself throughout throughout the day. And then we went down to the docks. Um, had like a sharing bowl of cocktail. And then there was only four of us that that then stayed out. So we then went from the docks at about 12 o'clock just for a couple couple more drinks. It was really, really busy. We were just waiting at the bar to get some, some drinks. It literally took about 10, 15 minutes to get served. And as I'd stopped, stepped back and got my drink, I felt something in my, in like my shoulder um, slash neck area. And it took me a while to kind of register what that feeling was was like obviously it's very out of context um and then I turned to my friend probably like 30 seconds like 20 seconds 30 seconds later and just said I think I've been injected and obviously she looked at me like I was going completely mental (laughs) and I was like no seriously like will you just have a have a look and so she did have a look at my shoulder and said that I'd got a mark we took a step forward back to the bar just to let them know what happened. Obviously, they were really, really busy. They were like, okay, thanks for letting us know. This is crucial. The first moment in Rebecca's story where there was an opportunity for intervention, for someone to take charge of the situation and offer some help, and it was ignored. Anecdotally, this experience is echoed by the majority of spiking victims we've spoken to. It's the experience of hundreds of people who email I've been spiked. After I fell over, the door staff kicked me out of the bar. 
Luckily, one of my friends was outside smoking and came to sit with me, or I would have been on my own. I felt like nobody wanted to know. They just buried their heads in the sand and pretended it hadn't happened. I spoke to a spiking victim called Lisa Townsend, who had a similar experience to share. It was about 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago, when I was at university. And it was something that we did talk about in small groups. We knew that, that spiking was an issue. It was almost something that you, you just accepted it. And, you know, if you went to a bar, you know, you knew not to leave your drink on its own. You know, if you had to pop to the ladies, you made sure that you asked a friend, oh, could you just keep an eye on my drink? And we all knew why we were asking it. I was spiked in a bar and I didn't realise until, it was probably the following day actually, I knew, and I was very lucky, I was with a group of girlfriends that I was living with in a student house and we'd gone out for the evening and I've never been a big drinker and I certainly wasn't at university. Um, I used to sort of, I really enjoyed dancing, I enjoyed going to clubs and dancing, but I had had a drink that evening and the girls had taken me home and I couldn't really remember anything and I woke up the following morning just feeling awful but not, didn't feel like a hangover but it just felt horrendous and I realised I couldn't really remember what happened much the night before Um, and I sort of put two and two together and worked out what happened. When Lisa was spiked, she knew exactly where and when it happened but when she confronted them about it she certainly didn't get the response she was looking for. A few days later, I went back to the bar that it happened in and um, I said to them, look, I think this happened on, on Thursday night. And they said, oh, no, we, we don't have that kind of thing happen here. It must have been somewhere else. And I said, well, it can't have been somewhere else because this is the only place I had. I was here most of the night and this is the only place I had an alcoholic drink and I only had one alcoholic drink. And then they said, well, it must have been a bad batch of vodka. I don't drink vodka, so (laughs) it definitely wasn't vodka. But also, I was quite taken aback, and still am, by the fact that they would rather admit, if you like, to having a bad batch of alcohol that they were selling than to admit that something such as spiking might have happened in their bar. There's more to Lisa's story, which we'll unpack in a later episode. But it goes to show that, in so many cases... The bar's first response to someone saying they've been spiked on the premises is one of denial. And of course, there's times when bars or bar staff do intervene and actually only make the situation worse. As psychologist Emma Kenny says, Physically, you have absolutely no capacity to move. I've watched what bouncers do with girls like that. They literally put them on the street outside. So not only do they create a scenario where this individual is rendered completely incapable of doing anything to protect themselves, they then place them in an opportunity and situation where a predator has perfect access. Fortunately, that didn't happen to Rebecca. She wasn't incapacitated and she was able to decide what she wanted to do next. I didn't want to ruin the night, so I finished my drink. We didn't have any other drinks after that, um, but we did stay out for around like an hour, an hour and a half after that. Just with me not knowing anyone, didn't want to go back on my own. The next morning, in the shower, she noticed that the mark on her shoulder was still there, though fainter. She told the other women on the Hindu over breakfast. They were sympathetic, but the day carried on as planned. Shopping in the city centre, hot chocolates, and the journey back home in the afternoon. I think I was in a bit of a fuzzy bubble for for two days. I reported it 
a couple of weeks later and I just think it's because it hadn't really sunk in yet but then when I reported it um having seen it happen to other people like that's when the panic kind of set in because I was like this is real that did happen I actually had to have like a couple of days off off work like my anxiety not that I've ever suffered with anxiety which is I know that so many people do and it's it's horrible um, but I just couldn't get out of bed in the morning, like I couldn't leave the house. On top of that, word came back from the police that they couldn't investigate Rebecca's case further. From what the police have told me, that it's because I didn't report it soon enough that the bars don't keep footage for, for longer than 24 hours in some cases, which is mental. Like, for you to pluck up the courage within 24 hours to come forward and say that, like, it's a pretty big thing that's happened to me, like, is is ridiculous. One of the things that I've learned is that most people do not report spiking incidents. Anecdotally, those that do often come forward a few days after the event. The whole thing takes time to process, physically and mentally. But it seems like there's an expectation that if it was truly a serious crime, it would be reported immediately. I felt really guilty for not having reported it like the day after or like a couple of days after just because I I was kind of blaming myself more than more than anything as to if he I say he could have been a woman who knows um, if they carried on injecting people throughout that night there's then I could have stopped that does Rebecca blame the bar if they hadn't been as dismissive like maybe they could have contacted the police rather than me doing it um, like straight away because I don't know if anyone else was potentially hurt that same same night and they could have obviously reviewed the footage because they would have definitely had it at that that moment in time but because they just kind of like thanks for letting us know we're really busy that obviously never happened and it could have it could have done I contacted them afterwards as well to say look I've, I've spoken to the police I'm just wanting to let you know that they'd be in touch following what happened that I reported to like your mem- a member of staff and no one got back to me at any any point Rebecca's story highlights the urgent need for people on the front line of this, people who work in bars and clubs across the country, to respond in the right way. But what is the right way? How should bars behave? I started researching this, looking for a policy or a best practice which was standard across all bars in the UK. And well, there isn't one. It's unbelievable to me. There's a policy on underage drinking, one on bladed weapons, there's rules on opening hours, and one just about drugs. But on spiking, I couldn't find anything. It's up to each bar or pub to make its own rules and to enforce them. And that means there could be a huge range of interventions and outcomes for victims, depending on where they choose to drink and where they get attacked. And that can't be right. So, what's the answer? How do we get bars to play their part and keep us safe? Last October, following the rise of spiking via injection, I remember seeing flyers for something called Girls Night In popping up on my social feeds. Before long, the buzz had grown, to the point where it was making national news. 
like these reports on the BBC and Sky. Well, safety campaigners are demanding a national boycott of nightclubs until women's safety can be guaranteed. A boycott of clubs in over 30 university towns and cities is taking place over the next two weeks to raise awareness of the issue. It's called Girls' Night In. The posts were bright pink and eye-catching and they were calling for a boycott of bars and clubs in a particular city. I'm not going to lie, I was disappointed. Why was I being asked not to go to a bar? Why was my well-being made smaller and more limited because of some dickheads with GHB or needles in their pocket? I posted about it on my Twitter feed to a mixed reaction. Some people thought this was the right way to make a stand and be heard. Others were indignant. Why should we, potential victims, compromise? I got in touch with Izzy, who organised the Leeds arm of the Girls' Night In boycott. Girls' Night In is um, a national anti-spiking movement uh, that started in Edinburgh and then has spread across the country, uh, mostly on social media. And in October, we staged a nationwide boycott of clubs and pubs to protest the rise in spiking, especially in response to the rise in injection spiking. Now it's continuing on to try and get nightclubs uh, to take more responsibility for spiking that happens in their venues. It absolutely sounds like a noble cause. And I ask Izzy how it had started. Everyone sort of knew spiking happened and everyone was sort of aware of it, but it wasn't something that anything was really done about. It wasn't something people even discussed that something could be done, if you know what I mean. It was it was just accepted that that was part of a night out and you sort of heard a story every now and then of somebody being spiked. And it was like, oh, that's such a shame. That's so scary. And for me personally, it was just hearing about this spiking by injection. The fact that, you know, this is a whole new level, this idea of being physically almost, you know, attacked by somebody. Um, and just the fact that it was happening so much in Leeds and the fact that, okay, so now when I go out next week, I'm not going to feel safe. And how is that fair? Because everyone should feel safe on a night out. Izzy's right. It's not fair. It's never been fair. And to my mind, Girls' Night In caught fire because feeling disempowered and wanting to take back control felt long overdue. And at first we were like, well, what can be done? And then we saw this 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 movement that was starting that was like, well, this is our answer. We started out with the clubs. We started out with, let's see a club response from this. Let's make clubs take responsibility because it's happening in their venues. Via a social media campaign, the movement gained traction. It became the thing of the moment and everyone was talking about it. I think quite a big turning point was we spoke to the MP Alex Sobel and we were working with uh, sort of the mayor of West Yorkshire and the deputy mayor um, and we had a big summit and about 60 nightclub owners attended that and the West Yorkshire police were there and I think that was a moment that club owners started to take this seriously and realised that this wasn't just going to go away. They couldn't just put a statement on social media and hope for the best. And, at least initially, Girls' Night In and the boycott it created did seem to have a positive effect. For a few weeks you saw that it was better and they had searches and they had sort of like an active um, movement against spiking, but then it kind of fizzled out a bit. Other places have been really strong and even today you'll go out and the, the process of getting into the club is a lot more rigorous. We were really grateful that a lot of clubs did sort of step up and I think some of them still are, but I think it's making sure the longevity is there, making sure that these changes are for the long term. Uh, and they continue to do more, so if it doesn't stop here, it's got to continue. So will it? Continue, that is. I was cynical, 
which he may have realised is my default position by now. My worry was that the bars and clubs who reacted positively to Girls' Night In were just jumping on a bandwagon to get some good publicity. But equally, any reaction is better than none. I got in touch with Michael Kill. He's in charge of the Nighttime Industries Association. This is not a new issue. Interestingly enough, I spoke to someone the other day who'd been looking at the historical situation here and they said that the first cases of spiking in such terms was in 1906, so which kind of blew me away, to be honest with you. Yoldi spiking aside, I wanted to speak to Michael about the here and now, about the massive rise in spiking cases over the last six months. And Michael painted a picture of an industry who'd been reactive and responsive recognising a weakness and implementing solutions. The way that we've approached this is by really starting to understand the journey, really understanding what our staff understand and their awareness of, of what spiking incidents look like and particularly vulnerability as a whole. So there's a huge amount of training that's gone into staffing and ensuring that there is incident process so that staff understand what their responsibilities are things like welfare officers on site, particular people that would take care and are trained to look after people, identifying safe spaces with it on site, just making sure that there is a clear process. So much of this didn't ring true to me, though. If this is a long-term problem, why hasn't it been tackled way before now? And with all that time to get it right, Why do my experiences and those of people like Rebecca and countless people I've contacted with I've Been Spiked suggest that it's not working? I pressed Michael on this. The challenge that we have is with the escalation on reports here, we've obviously reacted to a consideration or an issue which has seen an increase in levels which brought you know, a more focused view on on what we're doing. So I don't think it's the fact that there has been nothing in place. It's just how robust that position is, given the prevalence of the situation. And then he added... I think the other thing you've also got to remember that is um, we have one of the highest turnovers of staff of many, many industries. So we've, we've got to become more effective at ensuring that our induction includes those, those training mechanisms before people start. So... High staff turnover means more chance of untrained, new staff being employed without the skills or experience to help someone in need. Which makes sense, but it's not reassuring. And Michael conceded it wasn't good enough. We've taken some positive steps, but I think there's still a journey to go to ensure that we are doing everything possible so that people feel safe coming out. And and we're starting to draw back on that fear of coming out at night for, for women and you know, that that should be able to enjoy a night out. Then Michael said that, as well as failings internally, the bars and clubs were being let down by the police. And this was where the biggest change was needed. One of the challenges that we've had inherently is the police have, because of resourcing levels, and I'm not sure completely all the reasons, but it's always been very, very difficult when we've discovered someone who's incapacitated for the police to sort of palm it off as someone who is just drunk. The culmination or legacy of issues that we've had by police not taking up 
uh, these incidents has led to security not presenting them as often, has led to staff not presenting them as often, etc. So, you know, you can understand how that would work. If you do all of this work and get it to policing and policing do nothing about it or dismiss it, then at some point over a period of time, you're going to feel like you're not getting traction or you're not being taken seriously. I hear you, Michael. We'll examine the police's role in all of this in a later episode. But Michael's point is that without the police doing their job and arresting perpetrators and offering a deterrent, then the industry can't be accountable. But all of this didn't explain why there wasn't a joined-up policy for every bar and club to adhere to. Something which comes under his remit and something which surely could exist regardless of what the police are doing. But again, Michael said that was down to others to decide on. And he thinks that it needs government directive to make it stick. This direction all needs to come from the Home Office because we've got 52 police forces working with different partners to create different training, different overt campaigns, different processes. And it's just surreal that we can't draw this together. I've seen so many different processes from Cornwall and Devon to Exeter, to Glasgow and and Edinburgh, all of them very different, all of them with very different belief systems. And this is where the Home Office needs to tie everything together. If the Home Office deliver a training mechanism uh, with consistency, then we can roll that out across clubs, bars, etc. Michael spoke openly about his hopes going forward, which pretty much mirrored my own. I want to do everything possible to remove the fear um, uh, I want to do everything possible to remove the potential for people to commit these crimes. Um, and I think the key thing to this is not to point fingers, but to collectively work together. I agreed with him. Pointing fingers won't make things better. But then Michael added. We've only got so many staff. We've only got so many security. So at some point, the community has got to take a stance on this. I won't lie. It was a disheartening conversation. While Michael admitted that the nighttime industry could do more and is now trying to pick up the pace, it still felt disjointed to me, with a lot of pushing blame elsewhere. I still don't feel like asking for our safety to be made priority in bars, pubs and clubs where we spend our money is too much to ask, especially after years, decades even, of spiking. Waiting for directives from police or parliament seems really flimsy to me. Saying it's up to the community at large means no one is ever directly accountable. There are green shoots though, in the form of independent bars and chains who aren't waiting for a green light to make this issue a priority. Palm in Chester is one of them. I'm Zoe Ellis, I'm the owner of Palm Cocktail Bar and Eatery in Chester. The Palm is located on one of the main streets in the city, and you can't miss it. With its bright pink frontage and flowers around the door and lining the windows, it's a pop of brightness on this otherwise historic street. Inside, it's warm and inviting. There's a constant chink of glasses and the hum of the coffee machine. When I visit, there's groups having brunch, having afternoon cocktails, and I'm sure that, as the Saturday night edges nearer, it will be even busier still. The owner Zoe is pinging between tables in the bar, but I grab her quickly, knowing she's eager to give me a different perspective about how bars can handle customers' safety. 
for us, you know, over 90% of our customers are female. Um, when we designed this bar, we sat down and we were like, right, we want to always be able to see all of our customers. The bar, all the other bars along this street, their actual bar faces a different way. Whereas we were like, no, we want it so that when people walk in or when people are in front of us, we, everyone can be seen. Like, there's no, like, you know, black areas or anything like that. So that was really important for us, not because we were thinking, oh, what if people are spiking, but just general safety. We wanted, we felt like that was the best way to get around it in what is like a small, intimate bar, but it's supposed to be extremely female friendly. If you remember, earlier in this episode, Michael Kill from the Nighttime Industries Association said one of the biggest difficulties faced by nighttime venues was the high turnover of staff. But that didn't seem to phase Zoe. The next thing for us was making sure that our staff were trained from the off. So you've got the Ask Angela, you've got the sign for domestic violence. So when we take staff on, you have to legally do like Challenge 25, health and safety, how to use a knife. So we, as much as like we stick to all of that, we wanted to incorporate our own, which is basically part of their standard day one, day two, day three training. Um, you know, and it's something that we constantly test them on and refresh them on. And again, you know, in the hopes that you never have to use it. But if you do, they know what they're doing. Zoe makes a good point. Bar staff, no matter how new, they always seem to know how to pull a pint or to pour a drink. So in that case, the high turnover of staff doesn't seem to stop basic training. And shouldn't patron safety surely be just that? Basic. But Zoe thinks bars can take it one step further. She doesn't see her responsibility stopping with just her paying customers. We're really big on people just knowing we're a safe space. Whether it be kind of just letting customers know, do you know what, you don't even need to have been in Palm, but if you're walking past and you can't get a taxi, just pop in. If we're shut, if the lights are on, just knock, wait here for you know, a taxi. And quite often that will happen with us because people feel comfortable. I asked Zoe about a lack of national policy and whether that's a sticking point for a lot of venues. I always think this in any situation, you can't be reactive, you've got to be proactive. You can't wait until someone gets spiked in your bar. You've got to, ha you've got to have a procedure in place beforehand. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but I think, you know, to make it so it's less likely to happen, so people know when they come into your bar, not just the female customers or, or the male customers, whoever it is that's being targeted, but the people that are doing it, so that they know that it won't be tolerated. They won't, you know, there's procedures in place. Because at the end of the day, this is what I always say as well, you're dealing with criminals. You know, you can't, I think a lot of people feel like as the bar industry, we should do bag searches and then we should just apprehend people. And it, it doesn't work like that anymore. You're not looking for chewing gum in someone's bag. You're looking for uh, drugs because someone may want to sexually assault someone. You're dealing with, at the end of the day, a, a criminal. And and there has to be a procedure. So could there be another reason at play here? Something which stops clubs and pubs and bars from shouting about safety policies in their venues? Zoe thinks so. I think the problem we've got is people have this fear that if they get involved, it makes it seem like it's happened in their bar. And it, it, you know, it's ne as far as we're aware, it's never happened in our bar. Um, it, it's not the case with that. You can still be part of it. You can still want to see change, see something happen. It's like, well, let someone else deal with it. Let's not get our hands dirty. But in the, you know, in the short term, nothing is being done. 
And Zoe saw the rise in spiking and the panic it created as the perfect opportunity for bars like hers to step up and be part of the conversation for everyone's benefit. You had the girls' night um, in, which was like a boycott of bars and restaurants and stuff like that. And whilst I feel like I understand the sentiment behind it, to me, it wasn't, it was pinpointing the blame on the wrong people. Um, and I feel like they were after that, and what? Like, and what? That, that was always my question, is like, and what happens next? Speaking to Zoe is like a breath of fresh air. She's someone who gets it. She sees that it makes sense to make her customer's safety a priority, not only morally, but commercially too. I know I'll never go back to the bar where I was spiked. I'd rather spend my money and my time elsewhere where I feel safe. And Zoe made a good point. Maybe she gets it, because thinking about her own safety is second nature to her, like for most women. For me, as a woman, right, it's so difficult and I, I think this is where, like, when I explain it to people, I, I say, like, you know, when we, mo we moved house just before Christmas and my husband's looking at the house and he's like, oh, this is big and I'm sat there thinking, well, it's got gates, which is great because I'll be there by myself at certain points. When I get a takeaway delivered, I always shout up like someone's in the house when I'm by myself and I've always done that and trying to explain to people that as women these are the things that we have to think about so all we're asking is when we go out somewhere why can't someone else be thinking about it as well we you know I own the business so there's a duty of care there it would be more irresponsible for me to ignore it and to not try and do something and that's it isn't it the nail on the head we need more bars, more pubs, more clubs to stop ignoring it. To be proactively, unequivocally responsible. Next time, we ask how men are affected by spiking. From the perpetrators, to the trolls, and the victims. We find out that men are central to every part of the spiking conversation. If you've been affected by spiking or the issues discussed in this podcast, there's a list of resources on the I've Been Spiked Instagram page. Pricks is a podcast production by What's The Story Sounds. The series is produced and presented by me, Maya Howells, in association with I've Been Spiked. Sound design by Daryl Brown, and our executive producer is Sophie Ellis. <laughs>